you'd like to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, we're going to be continuing our sermon series called Just That Simple through the Gospel of John. We're looking at John 6, verses 41 through 71 this morning. After taking a, a brief break last Sunday, hearing from Elder Tony Weber from Psalmate, we're back at it. This is our commitment to consecutive expository preaching. We're walking through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, and not skipping over anything, explaining to the best of our ability, with God's grace, everything that God's Word has to say to us. So we're looking at John 6, 41 through 71, that's on page 892 of the Pew Bibles. And before we go to this portion of God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for giving us this word, this revelation. We thank you that your word contains everything we need to know about you, about us, and about how to be made right with you. We thank you that the Gospel of John so clearly lays out the necessity of belief in Jesus Christ. And Father, this morning we specifically request the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We want, us, we want to see the true meaning of this passage. We want to understand the words of Christ and to understand what this word is saying to us today. So this is our prayer, Father. We pray this in faith and in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a neighborhood birthday party going on, and this is one of those neighborhoods where they had a lot of children about the same age, and they had decided a while ago that they would just have one big party and celebrate all the children's birthdays that occur in the summer together. So they were at Julie's house this time, and they did all the regular birthday party types of things. They had outdoor games that the children were playing. They had a, a sprinkler set up so the kids could put their suits on and have some water fun. And then when that was all over, they, they moved inside for the giving of gifts and the, the opening of the presents. And each child that had a birthday in the summer got their presents and they opened those. And after that was all over, one of the, the dads stood up and clapped his hands and said, Well, I think it's about time for a birthday cake and ice cream. Who's hungry? And of course, all the kids shouted, me, and they threw their wrapping paper in the air and blew their noisemakers. And, and it was at that point that Julie stood up and said, actually, no, we're not having any birthday cake this time. And the, the noise kind of quieted down, and, and one of the parents said, wait, what? She said, yeah, I've been convinced that that's, that's really not the healthiest choice. She said that um, their family in particular had uh, decided to eliminate all sugar, and so there's no birthday cake. And another mom got a half smile on her face and said, you're, you're joking, right? The cake's in the fridge. She said, no, no, you heard me correctly. Um, I really feel strongly about this, and I, I don't think that my kids should be eating that much sugar, and frankly, your kids shouldn't either, and that's why we're not having a birthday cake. There was some grumbling among the parents, 
And then uh, one of the dads stood up and said, come on, I think, I think we're done here. And one by one, they began to file out. One person was overheard saying, she could have told us ahead of time. Another person walked by Julie and gave her a, a fake smile and said, thanks for the party. And as you can imagine, that was the last neighborhood birthday party that Julie was asked to host. In John chapter 6, there were some Jews who had heard what Jesus had been teaching, and they had heard that Jesus was claiming to be the bread that came down from heaven. They were shocked. They, they had trouble believing that this local guy really would be saying such, th such things. Many of them probably wondering if they had heard correctly. But when Jesus showed up in person and, and was face to face with them, his entire response could be summarized by saying, yes, you heard me correctly. And like Julie's birthday party, many people left. Now, whether you think cake is a good thing or not, that's up to you, that's your opinion. But the words of Christ are not a matter of opinion. In fact, the words of Jesus are the words of God. John 6 shows us that the word of God caused many people to walk away. The word of God repelled people. And what I want us to see as we move to application towards the end of this passage is that that's okay. We shouldn't be upset or shocked by that because the same word that repels many is the word that draws others to eternal life. So let's look at John 6. Let's read these words that, that turn many away, but that also led others to believe. This is John 6, 41 through 71. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. 
This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So first, before we even begin to cover this, we need to say a note about the setting of this passage. Uh, careful readers will note that verses 25 through, tw- through 40 Describe Jesus interacting with the crowd that had been present for the feeding of the 5,000. That crowd, many of them, had crossed the Sea of Galilee and found Jesus. And we know that this crowd had been present for the feeding of the 5,000 because Jesus says they, quote, ate their fill of the loaves. So this conversation that he had had earlier in John 6 with this, what we're going to call bread crowd, seems to be outdoors. It was where they found Jesus, probably near the sea, near Capernaum. However, our passage begins here in verse 41 saying, the Jews grumbled about him. And remember, John uses the phrase, the Jews, to primarily talk about the Jewish leaders and and those that stood opposed to him. And later in verse 59, it says that Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So somewhere between verse 26 and verse 59, there is a shift from the bread crowd to the Jewish leadership in Capernaum. There's a shift from the the seaside to the synagogue. And the only explanation that really makes sense is that there has been some kind of time interval or some kind of delay or break between verses 40 and 41. That allows for the shift in setting, that allows for the shift in crowd, and it allows time for Jesus' words that he spoke to the bread crowd to circulate and make their way to the Jewish leaders that were in the synagogue. And these Jewish leaders were grumbling. What were they grumbling about? Verse 41 tells us his, his statements about being the bread that came down from heaven. They didn't like Jesus teaching that he came down from heaven because he was calling himself God. We looked at that in the last couple of weeks. This was a a flat out assertion of his divinity. And this grumbling was amongst themselves, it says later on. So this was not to his face, but it was among themselves. 
they were hearing a report from the bread crowd and they were most likely wondering, are we hearing correctly? Are, are we catching this right? Is this report that we're getting, is this accurate? And then in verse 42, they, they respond, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, who we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? In other words, we know this guy. He's local. We've seen him grow up in, this area, in the area. We, don't, we know his parents. What is he talking about saying he came down from heaven? We've seen him grow up in front of our eyes. Grumbling. Now, grumbling in Scripture is never a good thing. In fact, the New Testament commands us as, as followers of Christ to not grumble. And Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without grumbling. So it's, it's not a good thing. In the Old Testament... Uh, for example, when we see the people of God grumbling against Moses and Aaron, God's, God's mediator in, in the wilderness, God responds by saying, why does this people despise me? So, so God takes that grumbling against his, his appointed mediator and responds by saying, you're, you're grumbling, you're, you're despising me when you do that. How much more so when we have people grumbling against the ultimate mediator, the, the Holy One of God, Jesus, this is not a good thing. So when we read these, these comments by the Jews, they're not asking innocent questions. They're not saying, oh, now how does he say he comes down from heaven? No, they're saying, how does he say he comes down from heaven? They're being scornful. They're not happy with this teaching Jesus speaks to the grumblers, verse 43. And this is really his chance to clarify. This is Jesus' opportunity to, to go one of two ways. Either he could say, okay, let's, let's slow down a little bit. You heard this report. I don't think you heard me accurately. I didn't say that. I didn't say I came down from heaven. Or he could go the other direction and say, yes, you heard me correctly. I am the bread that came down from heaven. And this is his response. He says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this is followed by several other comments, which we'll get to in a moment. But this initial statement is the first response that he gives to the grumbling from the Jewish leaders. And if we could give ourselves permission to paraphrase in order to get the sense of what Jesus is saying, we might say something like this. That opening comment is like saying, don't waste your time grumbling against me. Because it doesn't bother me at all. It doesn't affect me. It's not going to make a difference in what I say or what I do. I know you don't accept me. I know you, I know you don't believe in what I'm saying. I know you don't believe in me. And I understand that. Because the Father has not drawn you to me. And unless that happens, you're not going to come to me and you're not going to believe in me. So don't waste your breath grumbling. You see, the Jewish leaders, now we, we've seen a little bit of this. We've seen a little bit of how much influence the Jewish leaders really had over the general population. When we looked at that uh, man that was by the, by the pool outside of Jerusalem that Jesus healed after being paralyzed for 38 years, remember how he went back and reported to the Jewish leaders? Yeah, you wanted to know who it was. It was Jesus. They had an immense amount of influence on the general population. We're going to see this again in John 9 with the man born blind and the parents willing to essentially disown their own child 
rather than face the wrath of the Jewish leaders. So here it is again. And Jesus, by saying these things, is, is letting them know that doesn't work on me. You don't bother me. I know you, you influence people and maybe even intimidate other people. That doesn't bother me at all. Um, I couldn't care less about what you think I should say or what you think I should do or who you think I should be. I'm not, I'm not answering to you. And so he's putting them on notice. These people that were, that were used to, to others moving out of their way when they walked down the street, or the, the, the general population pretty much accepted what the, the Jewish leaders and the Sanhedrin had to say without question. It, they just said, okay. Jesus says, I'm, I'm not saying okay. I'm not answering to you. And I'm certainly not going to obey you. The Jewish leaders in the synagogue at Capernaum have heard this report from the bright crowd. And they're wondering, did we, did we get that right? Is that what he's really saying? And Jesus is showing up, and he's looking them in the eye, and he's saying, that report that you heard, that you don't like, the things that you don't want me to say, let me say it again. Let me look you in the eye. Let me say it a little louder this time. I want to make sure you hear this. And I want to make sure you understand that you, you heard me correctly. In verse 45, Jesus quotes Isaiah 54, 13, and they will all be taught by God. Now, it's in, in its original context, the prophet is, is describing a future restored people of God after the exile. And in this picture of a, of a restored people, God will give his people spiritual sight under the new covenant, ultimately, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling uh, Holy Spirit, um, new heart, new birth, and, and that God will draw all people to himself by drawing them to his Son. And Jesus cites this Old Testament teaching in order to show his enemies that what he's saying is nothing new. He's saying everyone that has, has learned and heard from the Father is going to believe in me. In other words, whoever the Father calls, whoever the Father gives spiritual sight to and ears to hear is going to come to me. Everyone who is called by God will come to God through God the Son. Verse 46, just in case anybody thinks that God literally shows up and, and teaches people, he says, not that anyone has seen the Father except he is who, from God and he has seen the Father. And then in verses 47 and 48, this is where he really turns up the heat. He repeats the same teaching he gave to the bread crowd but now to the Jewish leaders and declares that belief in him is the only way to eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And he continues in 49 and 50 by contrasting and, and comparing himself to the, the manna in the wilderness. And uh, he says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This, meaning himself, is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and live. He's, he's laying it out and he's saying, okay, judge for yourselves. Which bread is better, the bread that you eat and die or the bread that you eat and live? It's not a trick question. Don't think too hard on it. Which one's better? As he offers them himself. He's showing them that he is greater than Moses. He's greater than the manna in the wilderness. 
they can stop looking backwards to Moses and they can start looking to him as the Son of God. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Talk about confrontational. He's declaring himself to be God to the Jewish leaders. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Well, they respond to that. Verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? We might call this the wait what verse. They're they're listening to Jesus tell them this, and, and then he talks about eating his flesh. Wait, what? Eat your flesh? You want us to eat your flesh? Okay, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, we know who you are. What, what are you talking about? Verses 53 and 54. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, if you've been with us for our pilgrimage through the Gospel of John so far, then then you are equipped to judge whether or not Jesus is speaking literally or spiritually at this point. Is he literally talking about eating his body and drinking his blood? Or is he talking spiritually? Is this figurative metaphorical language to point to something spiritual? Spiritual. Yeah, he's not literally describing eating flesh. So, we have to determine what is the spiritual meaning of what he's saying. He's not talking about literally eating his body. So what is he talking about? Let's unpack it. My flesh. Let's just, let's just kind of decode this. Because I think even as, as young believers, or, or as someone just coming into the church, we get to John 6 and we read this, eat this flesh, drink the blood, and we're like... I think I know what that means, but I'm not 100% sure. Let's, let's decode this. My flesh, in verses 51, 53, and 56, he is talking about his body offered up as an atoning sacrifice for sin. If you look at the end of verse 51, do you see how he says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's talking about an event that has not happened yet, but that will happen. And he's talking about offering himself up, his body and his blood, as an atoning sacrifice for sin on the cross. So that's what my flesh and my flesh and blood means. His sacrifice on the cross. How about eating and drinking? Eating and drinking is faith, belief. Not literal eating and drinking, but believing upon Jesus Christ and his atonement for the forgiveness of sins. So this is not something that we do with our our mouth. This is something we do with our heart and our mind, with our inner self, our inner being. It's not something we do outwardly, it's something we do inwardly. He says, unless you, meaning unless or except, or if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He's telling you, if you do not believe in me, if you do not put your faith and trust in what I have done on the cross as an atonement for sins, you have 
no eternal life. You remain in your sins. You, you have no spiritual life. You remain dead spiritually. Unless you come to me. He says, whoever feeds, not has fed, or has fed once, but feeds, meaning continually. It's not a one-time thing. We don't put our faith in Christ once and then we're done. We, we continually, ongoing faith in Christ. Whoever continually believes in Christ. He's saying, whoever continually believes and puts their faith and trust in me and my sacrifice their entire life, from, from the time they come to Christ, from the time they're called all the way to the end, that person has eternal life. That person can be sure that I will stand with him on the day and I will raise him on the last day. That person. Verses 56 and 57 shows us the spiritual union between Jesus and those who are his. The one who is believing in Jesus, he says, abides in me and I in him. So the person who abides or dwells or remains in Christ, Christ remains with them. The, the Bible teaches that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are what, what the Bible says is, is in Christ. That language that, that Paul uses very frequently, in Christ. He's talking about those who have faith in Christ, that believe in him, that meet this criteria of continually believing upon and trusting in his sacrifice. They are in Christ. But it also talks about the reverse. It also talks about Christ being in us. Here's a couple examples. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then here's the reverse. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So it works both ways. This is talking about our spiritual union with Jesus through faith. And if that wasn't enough, he emphasizes the union between himself and the believer by comparing the believer's spiritual union between Christ and, and themselves with the Son and the Father. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. He's saying that the believer's spiritual union to Jesus Christ is as strong, is as inseparable, is as real, is as true as the union between the Father and the Son. It's been said that if it is possible for the Father to disown the Son, then it's possible for the Son to disown those who are in Christ. That's how connected we are with Jesus Christ in, through faith. And then verse 58, another summary verse, in case the Jewish leaders didn't get it right the first time, in case they didn't hear him once again, as he clarifies, he, he gives them a summary verse in 58 of everything he's just said. And then we come to the division that this word has caused. Verse 60, many of the disciples said this is a hard saying. So many of the disciples these are people, we shouldn't think that these are people that have been regenerated. This isn't a, a group of believers that have saving faith. But at the same time, we, we don't want to say, well, this is just a bunch of random people that you know, are standing around in the marketplace. 
These are people who are self-professing to be followers of Jesus. These are people who have been following him around and claiming to be followers and, and belonging to him. These are people that have, have left jobs in some cases so they could travel around and, and sit under his teaching. So they're not just a random group of people. They're self-professed followers of Jesus. And when they heard it, they said, this is hard a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In other words, uh, who can handle this? Who can accept this? Who can sit under this teaching and, and follow this man? Verse 61, we see that once again, Jesus knows what's in people's hearts. He didn't need to hear it. He knew they were grumbling about this. And he asks these disciples if they take offense at this teaching. Well, clearly they have. And so he challenges them and asks them how they will respond when they see him ascending to where he was before. And before we rush to conclude that Jesus is referring to his actual ascension on clouds up into heaven, we need to slow it down a little bit. Jesus' path to ascending back to the Father <clears throat> excuse me, leads through the cross. He's not just walking around and then uh, one day just begins to float up in the air and clouds. No, he, he goes to the cross first. Humiliation, then exaltation. He's already told Nicodemus that the Son of Man must be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness from Numbers 21. So it seems as if Jesus is, with this challenge, appealing to something that's more offensive than what he's just said. More offensive than describing belief in him as feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. And it's hard to see how Jesus ascending up into heaven on a cloud is more offensive than this language. However, if we remember that his path goes through the cross, that makes a lot more sense. Because the cross was offensive. The cross was more offensive than this language. Uh, Paul goes out of his way in 1 Corinthians to identify the cross as the, capital T-H-E, stumbling block, the biggest offense in the entire gospel message. This was the stumbling block for the Jews to see their king, their, their messianic king, the one they thought they were receiving, naked and spit upon and mocked and bleeding and, and crushed and being executed like a common criminal, that was the stumbling block. So I think what Jesus is talking about here is he's saying, look, if you get offended at this teaching, what are you going to do when you see me hanging on the cross? Because that's a whole lot more offensive than, than the words I just talked about. Verses 63 and 64, he's telling them that the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives life. He's the one that's going to open your eyes to understand this message. You're not ever going to get it until the Spirit gives you spiritual sight. These are spiritual words that, that lead to spiritual life. And until you have the Holy Spirit opening your spiritual eyes, you're never going to get it. You're going to result, it's going to result in grumbling and you're going to take offense at it. 
And then we arrive finally at verse 66. This is a huge turning point in the ministry, his public ministry. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many. Many from the group that were self-professing to be followers of Jesus. Many from the group that had left their jobs and, and their homes to travel around and follow this, this great teacher. Many, after this teaching, after these words, decided it was time to turn back. Turn back means to desert. It means to, to, to abandon a position once occupied and no longer walk with him. What it's saying is these people, after, this, after these words, this teaching, they decided that Jesus was no longer worth following. So they left. And with this mass departure, and that's what it was, this is many. This wasn't, this wasn't a, a minority, this wasn't a couple of, you know, four or five people that kind of broke off. This was many left. Jesus challenges his 12 disciples and says, do you want to go away as well? Now, I think it's interesting that Jesus, with this mass departure, doesn't raise his hand and say, no, wait, please, please don't go. I, I, maybe you misunderstood me. It, it's okay. Let, let me rephrase that. I really, I really want you to stick around. Please? No. Instead, he turns to the 12 that remain and says, anybody else? There's the door. Are you with me or not? And then Peter, who is the recognized spokesman for the twelve, speaks up. Lord, to whom shall we go? That's not a legitimate question. He's not asking for a recommendation for a new master that he can go sit under. This is a, this is a way of saying, there is nobody else, Lord. There's no one else. You have the words of eternal life and, have, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is a confession. This is a confession of faith in Jesus. Jesus is the only sent one from God. He's the only one that has the words of God. This is what is attracting them. This is what is capturing their attention. This is what the Spirit of God is working through. It's the words. Uh, later in John 17 says, For I have given them words the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in the truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. By calling Jesus the Holy One, Peter was confessing a, a, a faith in, in a divine being. Only God is holy. Only God is holy. And he's saying, you are the Holy One of God. This is a confession of faith. Now, was Peter's Christology completely flushed out? Of course not. But this is still a remarkable confession and a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So Peter overall, speaking to Jesus and answering for the twelve, said, we're in. We're all in. Yes. That was a challenge question by Jesus. And the response was, yes. We're following you. We believe in you. We're not turning back. Even though many are, we're sticking with you. And then verse 70 and 71, that's kind of, it's kind of a downer to end the passage on. Uh, Peter, speaking on behalf of the twelve, makes this high confession of, 
Jesus being the Holy One of God, and Jesus answers and says, yeah, well, not all of you believe. One of you is a devil, meaning Judas. Now, Judas was among the twelve, but he was not a follower. And these words by Jesus show he was never a believer. He was among the twelve, but he was not a follower of Jesus. He remained a child of the devil. Judas was in the kingdom of darkness. He was always in the kingdom of darkness. He remained in the kingdom of darkness. He was never a true believer. And these verses are eye-opening because it shows us the, the possibility that someone can pretend to follow Jesus Christ. Someone can fake it. And everybody around them can't tell. But Jesus can tell. He always knows. So I think these, this last, these last couple verses highlight the divide between believer and unbeliever. As Jesus issues this challenge command, we still see there's, there's some that do and some that don't. Some will, some will follow him, some, some don't, even though some pretend. Let's summarize this. You heard me correctly. Jesus is saying, yes, you got it right the first time. I am the bread that came down from heaven. The summary would be this. The Jews in Capernaum and the synagogue grumbled against Jesus because he said he was the bread that came down from heaven. He responded by affirming that they had heard correctly and they, then he provided expanded teaching on the necessity of feeding on and believing in him for eternal life. Because of this teaching, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. When he asked the twelve if they also wanted to leave, Peter responded with a profession of belief in Jesus as the Holy One of God with the words of eternal life. The passage concludes with Jesus identifying one of the twelve as a devil, and John, in his narration of the account, identifies Judas as the devilish betrayer. This is a passage where Jesus doubles down. This is a passage where the report from the bread crowd is circulating and Jesus says, yes, that is what I said. And I, that is what I meant. You heard correctly. And he's speaking to the Jewish leaders. He's speaking to a large number of self-professing believers. And he's speaking to the twelve. He's speaking to all of them. And the words that he says have different results. To the Jews who grumbled and to the disciples who grumbled and turned away, the words repelled them. The words made them reject Jesus. It's the words. Look, verse 41. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, verse 42, how does he now say, it's all about the words, and then verse 60, the disciples that turned away, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. But then when we turn around to Peter and the rest of the believing 12, they were attracted by the words of Christ. These words drew them closer. These words were the foundation of, of their belief in him. It says in verse 60, 68, you have the words of eternal life. So same word, two very different responses. And was Jesus surprised by these two outcomes? Was, was he upset? Was he rattled? 
that, that some rejected him and, and others believed? No. No, not at all. In fact, he makes a couple of comments about how the words are spirit, the words are life. No one's going to get them unless the Father draws them to himself. No, he's not surprised or upset. Jesus is okay with this. Because he knows that the, he knows that the words he's speaking are going to result in some being re rejected and repelled from him and others are going to be drawn to eternal life. So we want to touch on three applications briefly here this morning. Based on this, this truth that this passage is teaching us that the words of Christ have two different responses. Some are, are repelled, others are drawn. Uh, application number one, it's an exhortation. Boldly proclaim the word of God to all people. Boldly proclaim the word of God to all people. Be bold in your proclamation of scripture. Never apologize for the word of God. Never back it up. Never say, I'm sorry for speaking the gospel. Even when it's rejected. Even when it turns people off and drives people away. Because that same word that you're speaking, God is going to use to draw people to himself. We're just the messengers. Expect two different responses. Expect some to be repelled by the word of God. And also expect others to be drawn. And when they are drawn, give God praise and glory. Thank him for using the words of scripture to draw people to himself. And thank him for using you as, a, as an instrument in his hand. But expect two different responses. This is nothing new. It permeates the pages of scriptures. So here's Matthew 7, 13 and 14. This is Jesus. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What do we see? Exact same thing we saw in John 6. Many, few. Same word, different responses. Many turned back. Few remained and followed him. So proclaim God's word boldly to all people. Uh, pray and ask God to use your witness, use the words that you're speaking from Scripture to call people to himself. But when challenged to change the message, when receiving pushback, or, or when, when asked to be silent when you have every right to speak, you can respond by saying, no, you heard me correctly. Those words that you don't want me to say, let me say those again. Let me say them a little louder. Let me look you in the eye and make sure that you understand that that's exactly what I meant. Proclaim the word of God boldly. Now, I'm not saying going out of your way to be offensive. That's not what this is about. There's, there's no reason for us to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with someone and scream in their face. If they're offended, let the word of God be offensive, not you. Let the word of God be offensive. So that's number one, boldly proclaim the words of God. Number two, this is a challenge question for believers. Are you feeding on Christ? Are you feeding on Christ? And we talked about what this means. Feeding is believing. It's faith. 
on, on Christ meaning believing upon his sacrifice as atonement for sin. Just like no one can eat or drink for us, no one can believe upon Christ for us. We can, as much as we would like to, if someone's ill or, or sick, we, we can eat all we want. It goes down into our stomach. That's not going to help them at all. It's the same thing spiritually. We have to believe upon Christ personally. No one can believe for you. Just like eating food can be felt, we know when we're eating. So too, we know when we're feeding upon Christ. We know when we're believing upon Him. We know when we're intentionally seeking His face, believing upon His sacrifice, trusting in His power to atone for our sin. It's something He's done for us. Are we feeding on Him daily? When we eat, we're strengthened. Our body receives uh, vitamins and, and minerals and protein and Yes, even sugar. I believe the uh, official Presbyterian position on birthday cake is that it's permissible in moderation. So, yes, even birthday cake. But the grace of God strengthens us. The, the certain knowledge of our forgiveness of sins, our, our unity with Christ, enables us to live a healthy spiritual life. That's what enables to walk before Him in, in obedience. We don't often forget to feed our bodies. How often do we just forget uh, long term? We might forget exactly to eat right on time, but how often do we, do we let that go? Not long. How often do we forget to feed on Christ? Uh, eating is something we do repeatedly. Uh, none of us eat once and then stop. We, we keep coming back. It's the same thing with Christ. We don't believe upon Him once and then we stop believing upon Him. We continually feed upon Christ. The gospel, the, the, the belief in Christ, our, our faith is not something we do once, like a bridge that we cross over to get from unbelief to belief. It's a road that we walk on daily and we never leave. So I would ask you, if you're feeling spiritually dry, if you're losing more spiritual battles than you're winning, or if life is becoming overwhelming, if you feel pulled in too many different directions, if you're honest and you admit to yourself that you make time for earthly things, but you don't always make time to feed upon Christ, turn to Him. If you're looking for a revitalized spiritual life, if you're looking for a more centered life on Christ, if you're looking for more joy in Christ, if you're looking for more spiritual victory in Christ, then turn to Him daily, personally, and feed upon Him. Intentionally believe upon His sacrifice on your behalf. And you're going to find Him right where you left Him. In the Word, in prayer, in Lord's Day worship, in the sacraments, in the ordinary means of grace, in the fellowship with other believers, you're going to find him right where you left him. Feed upon Jesus Christ. So number one, boldly proclaim God's word. Number two, feed on Christ. And number three, 
this is more of just a takeaway and and uh, something that would would propel us into into reaching for Christ on a daily basis. This passage forces people to either stand with Jesus Christ or turn away. This passage is Jesus forcing people to go one way or the other. I don't think too many people know this. There is one passage that I selected to be read during my ordination, and it was John 6, 41 through 71. This this passage, I'm drawn to it because, uh, for a lot of reasons, it, it proclaims the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, always a good thing. It proclaims the necessity of belief in Christ for eternal life. It contains the basics. But mostly because of the powerful impact it has on my heart every time I read it. Every time. I get to verses 66 and 67 and I see Jesus demanding a response. This is the part of scripture where Jesus looks men in the eyes and says, are you with me or not? You're either going to follow me or you're going to leave. Pick one or the other. There's no fence post. That resonates with me in a very powerful way. Because I look to the Lord and I see somebody who doesn't mess around. I look to Christ and I see this is a guy who makes it clear what he expects from his followers. He makes it clear what he has done for us and he makes it clear what he expects from us as well. There's no room for wishy-washy Christianity. There's absolutely no room for halfway discipleship. When you ask somebody if they're a believer, and they say, well, you know, kind of, and I used to be here, it's like, what are you talking about? There is no middle ground. This is an all or nothing. And so I ask you this morning, what is your answer? No one can answer for you. Are you in or are you out? What is your response to Jesus? How are you answering the Lord Jesus Christ? And my answer is the same every time. By the grace of God, yes, Lord, I will follow you. Follow you. Who else can I go to? Who else would accept a sinner like me? Nobody. Nobody. So what's your response? We are created to walk with him and to feed upon him. And he tells us, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this clear teaching from Jesus, where he communicates to us the necessity of faith upon him of belief in him and his work on the cross for us and where he demands a response. Father, I pray that each person here this morning would respond by saying, yes, Lord, I'm in. I'm all in. Even though many turn away, by your grace, I am going to follow you until life's end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.